You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 3rd of February, 2023, on Monocle 24, The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... The whole of the European Union is in this with Ukraine for the long haul. Ursula von der Leyen there, speaking from Kyiv, where the EU-Ukraine summit takes place today. We'll talk to a journalist travelling with her about the agenda and the dress code. Then we go to Hong Kong, or at least Hong Kong would like us all to go there, as an intense campaign to encourage foreign tourists kicks off. We'll find out what's behind Benjamin Netanyahu's push to shore up allegiances as Chad opens an embassy in Israel and Bibi holds talks with Macron in France. Plus... But with climate change, what we have now is, if you like, the ultimate border for humans, the only true border for humans, it's just where we can live. The author James Crawford examines the evolution of global boundaries. With a rustle through the papers and a shot of business news, we'll end the show with Andrew Muller's irreverent take on the last seven days. That's all here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The Pentagon is monitoring a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon that's been spotted flying over parts of the United States in recent days. A Brazilian senator has alleged that former President Jair Bolsonaro attended a meeting to discuss ways to overturn the country's presidential election result. And Southeast Asian foreign ministers will gather in Jakarta today for quarterly talks that will be dominated by the deteriorating situation in Myanmar. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, yesterday, 16 European commissioners arrived in Kyiv to meet with the Ukrainian government. And today, Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen and European Council President Charles Michel will have their EU-Ukraine summit with President Vladimir Zelensky. Travelling with them is the usual crowd of political journalists, including Suzanne Lynch, the chief Brussels correspondent for Politico, and she joins me now down the line from Kyiv. Suzanne, I understand that before the trip, there was a memo circulated telling participants what to expect and even what to wear. Can you tell us more? Yes, um, that was a memo circulated to some of the European commissioners that were on this trip um, ahead of the visit here. Now, a lot of them had been uh, in Kyiv before, but never so much uh, together as a group, if you like. So they were given uh, some some uh, tips on the optics of this uh, that effectively there was a dress code. Um, so no uh, green or khaki or too much, many bright colours. Um, and that was supposed to be a, a sign of kind of respect, I suppose, for Volodymyr Zelensky has made the army green T-shirt, his, his kind of wartime uniform. Um, and the other thing is that they travel together by train. Like a lot of the leaders we've seen, uh, you cannot fly into Kiev. You uh, travel to Poland and then get a 12-hour overnight train. So uh, that's the way uh, the commissioners it came uh, here to Kiev. And have there been many other instances of other ways of expressing sartorial solidarity? I mean, has Ursula von der Leyen repeated her yellow and blue look, for instance? 
She was. She was wearing that on her very first day here. Uh, and nearly everybody has that yellow and blue uh, pins. And, and really being in Kiev, it's obviously a city at war, but you do see uh, it, it stands out, some of the EU flags on some of the buildings, not all, obviously, but um, where the summit is taking place. Uh, a lot of uh, symbolism when Zelensky met von der Leyen first yesterday, they were standing in front of a sea of EU and Ukrainian flags, that yellow and blue. So uh, it is very much... Uh, stressing the kind of symbolism of uh, this visit. I mean, does this indicate that trips like these are as much about photo ops as anything else? It is. I mean, it does. But in, in a sense, symbolism matters at wartime. And the very fact that the EU is having a meeting at a, in a country at, at war is, is a first. Uh, it, yes, we've had visits from individual prime ministers, but not on the scale that you would have 16 members of the European Commission uh, travelling together. Um, also, this EU summit that's happening today with Charles Michel as well, that's the first time in EU have the EU has had a summit of this kind outside the EU and in somewhere where uh, it's an active war zone, essentially. Um, so in that sense, yes, it's about the EU showing a solidarity with Ukraine, um, showing Russia really that it believes Ukraine's future is with the EU, even though uh, the reality of Ukraine joining the EU anytime soon is something it, it, that that's still some time away. And, and I think that's one of the tensions here, managing expectations. Uh, the fact that Ukraine has made it clear it wants to join and wants to join quickly. The EU has said, yes, we do see you as uh, as a candidate country, as some as a country that will eventually join the EU, but you're not there yet. And that was all contained in a draft statement that I know Politico's seen. What more can you tell us that's come out in advance of this summit? Well, that's all about, yes, that draft statement, even though you only have the head of the European Commission and the European Council at this summit today, uh, what's been happening is that behind the scenes, the head of the European Council has been talking to all the EU 27 member states about what they expect from this summit. And uh, some member states are more keen than others when it comes to EU, the when it comes to Ukraine joining the EU. Uh, so we've got the Baltics, for example, who would like to see a quicker accession progress. But you've also got other countries, they, they may not say it publicly, but France, for example, traditionally in the last 10 years, so has been much more reluctant to expand the EU uh, further. So even though, yes, they have all agreed last June to give green, uh, Ukraine green light, they have set down a number of conditions. So in this communique, we're going to see a lot of language about, you know, Ukraine's future being in the EU, about their, their path to accession. But uh, what we won't see is a timetable and what we won't see is a commitment to accelerate this, even though we've already heard from Ukraine. We had the Ukrainian prime minister this week in an interview with Politico said he wanted Ukraine to join within two years. Now, already on Thursday when the commission was here, von der Leyen said she didn't want to be drawn on, on specific timelines and she commended Ukraine on the progress it's made and it has made progress. For example, one of the issues that the, that, uh, the Ukrainian government have to address is corruption. And they have been addressing that. So you can see that Ukraine is is answering the questions that the EU has and is answering them very quickly. But whether it will be quick enough for what the Ukrainian people expect is another matter. And do you think the meeting will lead to further sanctions and more military aid? Well, I think that is going to be part of the discussion. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky said on Thursday that he believes that sanctions have, have slowed down essentially against Russia. In saying that, the EU has indicated that their 10th sanctions package against Russia will be ready 
before 24th of February. That's the first anniversary of the Russian invasion. So that's what's happening on sanctions. And yes, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, talk about military spending and, and defence matters. Obviously, Ukraine uh, wants more uh, help from its allies. In particular, it has said that it, it's expecting would like fighter jets to be sent to Ukraine. Now, so far, uh, most countries have ruled that out. The US, the UK have said that's not on the agenda at the moment. Germany too. But you know, we've seen this before when we had the conversation about tanks. Initially, countries say no, and then eventually it may happen. And so we expect that to be some of the discussion today. Even though the EU is limited itself in what it can do on military, it did announce plans to train another 15,000 Ukrainian soldiers and to give money for things like demining of the country too. Mm. Uh, we believe that there might be an agreement on visa-free regime for, for industrial goods and also a new international centre to investigate the crime of aggression against Ukraine. Yes, um, so the visa-free uh, regime for goods is something that was already in place temporarily and they're hoping to, it's, it's part of the EU's plan to say to Ukraine, look, you may not be part of the EU, but we are deepening integration between the Ukraine and between the Ukraine system and the EU system. So that means there's going to be more free flow of goods as if you were an EU member, for example. Um, they're going to try and integrate Ukraine more into the single market. So Ukrainian businesses or government agencies can compete for EU funding or get EU grants, those kind of things. So that's very important uh, too. And also, yes, there is now a discussion, active discussion about setting up a new centre in The Hague Ukraine has been calling for a long time for the international community to recognise the war of aggression, the crime of aggression. And the EU has said, yes, it's going to look into that. And we're now learning of plans to set up some kind of a new tribunal in The Hague. Uh, they've been speaking to the Netherlands. E the EU has also been speaking to its own agency, Eurojust, and um, they are proceeding with plans for that. Is this also perhaps about combating war fatigue in the West and invigorating allies? Yes, I don't. I mean, I think uh, it's interesting. We were talking to officials here last night and I don't think there has been any level of war fatigue that we thought uh, might be there among allies. I think the challenge for Ukraine, and you could see it here yesterday, is that it's in the middle of winter. Uh, it is uh, worried, very worried about a new offensive uh, from Russia to perhaps coincide with the first anniversary, uh, but certainly in the spring. Uh, and it feels that it is not equipped and I think that's the main concern now, that it is trying to keep up uh, the interest from the West. But look, we have seen a, an unprecedented level of help. Um, the US, of course, has been leading, but across also across Europe. Uh, I think the discussion about jets, about fighter jets and about trainer, being able to train Ukrainian soldiers for that, if it was to happen, that's going to be the new debate. Uh, Ukraine feels that it needs this to try and really turn this war decisively. Suzanne, thank you very much indeed. That's Suzanne Lynch there from Politico in Kyiv. And this is The Globalist. It is 15.11 in Hong Kong, 7.11 here in London. After more than three years of virtual international isolation due to the pandemic, Hong Kong is very much open to visitors. Yesterday, the leader, John Lee, unveiled a promotion campaign that will include 500,000 free flights to lure tourists, businesses and investors back to the city. Well, I'm joined now by William Yang, who's East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle in Taipei. Uh, William, many thanks for joining us. Can you tell us more about this Hello Hong Kong campaign, including what sounds like a spectacular launch? 
Right. So this is a campaign for the Hong Kong government to really try to boost the tourism and the economy of the city again after three years of uh, isolation from the rest of the world. Uh, they, we have seen the number of visitors uh, drop to record low because of the strict uh, border lockdowns. And now because uh, the government have been purchasing tickets from airline companies to help them stay afloat uh, during the pandemic. So uh, the government now is launching this campaign to try to, uh, you know, uh, I think basically essentially uh, at, at the same time, uh, release these uh, tickets that they've been holding on to, but at the same time use this as a campaign to try to lure uh, all the visitors who used to come to Hong Kong back. And uh, we, this is going to be uh, di divided into different faces uh, and there will be up to uh, 500,000 uh, tickets are being given out uh, for six months time uh, starting in March. So essentially for uh, between March and September, uh, we will be expecting a lot of uh, visitors and a lot of uh, noises about uh, tourism campaigns going to Hong Kong. And is there a particular demographic that the city hopes to entice? I mean, I noticed, for instance, the use of Spanish and Russian in the publicity material. I think they are trying to target as widely as they can because uh, there have been multiple factors that really affected the interest of uh, visiting Hong Kong due to the national security law and at the same time, a lot of the controversial uh, programs and laws that the government have rolled out during the pandemic uh, that really hurt Hong Kong's image and the interest of inter international visitors to make Hong Kong as a travel destination. So uh, I think we will be seeing uh, traditionally a lot of the English-speaking uh, countries, especially from Commonwealth countries like the UK, Australia, and Canada, they're always very interested in a very, uh, like, uh, they just love going to Hong Kong. But at, the, at this point, we also see uh, different campaigns in different languages uh, being rolled out. So uh, it will be interesting to see how... Uh, who, who will be the target audience and the uh, target group of people that ended up uh, being resonating with this campaign and going to Hong Kong? Mm. Uh, I mean, you mentioned buy, the government buying airline tickets to keep those companies afloat. Do you think those flights will be enough to get the aviation industry back on track? Uh, I think uh, the industry's uh, forecast right now is definitely hopeful. But uh, as we also know that the Cathay Pacific, which is the main airline company in Hong Kong, has really suffered uh, during the pandemic. And uh, they, there have been news about them going bankrupt uh, throughout the last three years. So it will be difficult to really assess it right now where they stand economically and financially. But uh Hopefully, with the help of this campaign and uh, hopefully with the boost of Hong Kong's image, uh, this is going to help uh, the airline company to come back and also uh, resume uh, its uh, glory in the past. And now that Hong Kong is so much more under the control of China, do you think travellers returning after a long absence will find it much changed? I think this will also... Uh, remain to be seen. But definitely uh, some people who have gone back there felt like uh, a lot of the things have changed. Independent bookstores are no longer there. Uh, the very frequent uh, street protests that used to be uh, all, all across different parts of Hong Kong uh, is nowhere to be found. And there's, they say, uh, a very weird sense of stillness and quietness and orderly that is not kept really, you know, uh, the character of Hong Kong in the past. So there's definitely some changes for people who have uh, impressions about Hong Kong in the past. But 
uh, for first-time visitors, maybe they will still uh, find Hong Kong as a very vibrant and uh, modern uh, commercial city that offers a lot of different things um, for shopping, for food experiences, and even for hiking. And I wonder how welcome U.S. tourists will be, given the tension between the two countries. Um, I think for this campaign, the Hong Kong government definitely won't try to uh, exclude any visitors from any countries. Uh, but I think among the U.S. Uh, visitors themselves, uh, there are also government warnings uh, about uh, the taking precaution to when they visit Hong Kong and because of the national security law. So uh, it will have to see, you know, whether that uh, precaution from the government is actually going to take effect and also impact the interest among U.S. Uh, visitors to try to travel to Hong Kong. Now, William, just today it's reported that a Chinese surveillance balloon's been tracked over sensitive US sites. What more can you tell us about this? Uh, so, so far, uh, we only know that uh, the US government have not taken any moves to really try to shut down the balloon because of the safety on the ground. Uh, but they and but they say that uh, the balloon have seen seem to have actually flown over some uh, very uh, sensitive sites inside the U.S. and they're uh, on high alert and they're still monitoring it and they uh, condemn that as another way for China to try to. Uh, expand its uh, surveillance state uh, within another sovereign state. Uh, so I think we will have to wait uh, for more information from Washington later on and also the responses from China, uh, how they respond to this accusation about the potential uh, sur- uh, spy balloon that has been uh, causing this chaos in Washington, D.C. Mm. And now next week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's going to Beijing. It's the first visit to the country by a Biden administration cabinet secretary. Will the balloon impact on this and how significant is the visit? I think the balloon is probably not going to definitely dominate too much of the conversation, but this visit is definitely very important. First of all, is the continuation of the conversation between Biden and Xi Jinping in Bali last November. And at the same time, there are an array of issues that needs to be tackled, including the tensions around Taiwan and also the ongoing Ukraine war, the U.S. concerns about China, uh, Chinese companies potentially aiding uh, Russia in this war. And at the same time, there is the dire need from both sides to try to resume conversations on key issues like climate change and military. So, and also the tension around the potential visit of the new U.S. House Speaker, uh, Kevin McCarthy. So with such a long list of issues on the agenda, I think uh, the balloon probably will even probably be overlooked. But at the same time, there is a lot at stake uh, coming out of this trip uh, by Blinken. And he is also reportedly going to meet uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. And a lot of the experts are saying that this shows that China is really trying to uh, turn around its po- uh, international and foreign policy towards uh, some of the main uh, major countries around the world. William, thank you very much indeed. That's William Yang there speaking to us from Taipei. Still to come on the programme, where did humanity's obsession with borders come from? But with climate change, what we have now is, if you like, the ultimate border for humans, the only true border for humans, it's just where we can live. I'll speak to author James Crawford to unpack how borders make and break our world. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, 
we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Chad, the north-central African country, inaugurated an embassy in Israel yesterday, the same day on which Israel bombed Gaza. The event was attended by the country's president, though he won't meet with Benjamin Netanyahu, who's currently in Paris, talking to Emmanuel Macron. Well, Yossi Meckelberg is an associate fellow with the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House, and he joins me in the studio now. Yossi, many thanks for coming in. There's rather a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Let's start with Chad's relationship with Israel. It hasn't always been so friendly. Didn't they break off relations completely in the 70s? Yes, in the 70s, they broke relations. Much of it under pressure from Libya. Obviously, tension between Israel and and our world. In 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 the 70s, it was even before the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, the famous visit by by. President Saadat, the Egyptian president. But things changed and Israel resumed a relationship with with most African countries. Actually, Netanyahu visited there in 2018 and in January 2019. They announced about uh, re-establishing diplomatic relations, but somehow they just came around to open the embassy just outside Tel Aviv yesterday. Uh, the UAE, Bahrain and Morocco have all officially normalised relations with Israel since 2020. It's part of the US-brokered Abraham Accords. Now it's been announced that an historic peace agreement will be signed with Sudan in a few months' time. I wonder if this is indicative of an, of an Israeli push for closer ties with Arab and Muslim countries. Yes, and one of the things, if you look back in Israel from 1948 until, until the end of the Cold War, Many countries didn't have diplomatic relations, whether it's in Africa that many countries broke relationships, severed diplomatic relations after the 1973 war, in the Soviet Union and the East Europe. And this started changing in the, uh, during, during the end of the, of, of, of the Cold War. And for Israel, it's actually the, the, the sense of a siege, of not being connected with, with the rest of the world, only with the United States and Europe and some countries in Latin America. So this can supposed to give Israel a sense of security, but Israel never has a sense of security. Mm. But in, in, in principle, you know, you look at trade relations, security relations, cooperation on agriculture, technology and all of this. This has developed uh, immensely. But one of the things that actually it indicates that... A lo- one of the reasons for this relation not to materialize in, in, in the past is the Palestinian issue, the unresolved Palestinian issue. And I think it tells us that the Palestinian issue had been relegated down, very much down the priorities of most of this country. It's there, but it's not going to determine the relationship with Israel. And what else does it tell us about Israel's foreign policy and, and Netanyahu's uh, push to do this? And I think part of the motivation also in the Abraham Accord 
is the thing that's the, the way to the heart of Washington goes through Israel, rightly or wrongly. So it helps to improve relations with, with, with the United States. From Israel's point of view is not to rely only on, on smaller cluster of, of countries, but build relations with the rest of the world. Sometimes it, it brings this kind of clashes, especially with the main backer, the United States. For instance, closer relations with China. Uh, Upsets, upsets, the, uh, uh, upsets the United States. Now with Israel not supporting Ukraine outright and trying to sit on the fence when it comes to Ukraine, that's of course the West, the NATO, uh, look at it with, with suspicion why Israel is not on the right side of history. But the idea is to break this kind of limitation that Israel felt that it was limited in ability when it comes to trade and security cooperation and any other cooperation with other country. And I think sometimes is, you know, diplomatic relations is fine. I think every country would like to have diplomatic relations for any country possible. But some of these ties are a bit dodgy when it comes to the type of counter-terrorism, dealing with countries like Chad that has a very dodgy record on, on human rights, selling weapons, so this creates some of the tensions with Europe and, and the United States, especially as we see the kind of the domestic changes they take in, inside Israel. Yeah, the, the shift to the right. Not only shift to the... It's, it's even beyond shift to the right. It's basically trying to weaken the entire judicial system. It's weakening the demo, democratic system. It, it, it's, it's fair enough to have... In one election, one party, and then the other party wins election, whether it's the right or the left, the progressive. But what we see now is a judicial coup in trying to weaken the judicial system, the high court, giving more power to, to politicians. And by the end of it, Israel democracy might weaken so much that probably it won't be able to see itself or the world won't see Israel as a real liberal democracy. And is that judicial weakening to do with Netanyahu's own legal problems? It's, it's probably 99.9% about Netanyahu. Now, there are people that believe in that. There are, I, I, I look at this as between the sinister and the simple. The sinister don't believe in an independent judicial system because it doesn't serve their purposes to have full power there. The simple don't understand that winning election, it doesn't mean that you can change all the constitutional arrangement. It's not just having a majority because constitutional uh, arrangement should live beyond certain elections and, 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 and government. And, that, and that's the kind of, of, of struggle right now in Israel. The issue is... Netanyahu is the biggest operator of Israeli politics and manipulator. And right now, he is facing three cases of, of, of corruption. And by weakening the, the, the judicial system, he hopes to get out of, of his court case at all. And probably, if, if he'd ever convicted, to have the people in the judicial system or the judicial system won't be able, actually, to send him to jail. Mm. What's he doing in Paris? What he's doing in Paris... I wonder myself what, what possessed Macron to, to invite him right now. I think one of the reasons for, for Macron is, is because he's worried about deterioration that we already seen between the Israel-Palestinians, because the fragility of relations within France, between the Jewish community and Muslim, and then the extremism in, in, in France. I know that every time that there is 
full-blown conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians, or at least increasing tension between them, it affects relations within France, within France and, 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 and extremism there. So I think he tried to tell Netanyahu, calm it down, especially when some of the ministers within the Israeli government are pushing to more friction with the Palestinians. Mm. And I think this is what worries him. Then there are other issues of maintaining relations with, with Israel on issues like Iran and, and trade and, and radicalization. So there is a, a range of it. But I think for, for, for Paris, the main concern is what happens if what some of the ministers in Netanyahu government promised to do vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, which most of I think will lead to, to actually bloodshed, violence and bloodshed, how it's going to affect also Europe. And we are seeing a lot of violence and bloodshed right at the moment. What can you tell us about this latest cycle of violence? And, and again, this, this happens, as, as always, and there is no political solution. It leaves the, the, a vacuum there, because there is, among the Palestinians, there is just despair. Between a far-right government that obviously is hell-bent on expanding settlements eventually to annex the, the West Bank, a failed Palestinian authority, division between the Hamas and the Fatah, international community that actually lost interest in Israel and Palestine, people suffer. You know, other blockaded in Gaza, live in poverty, high level of unemployment, uh, cycles of violence, uh, many... And the same in, in, in the West Bank. So at the end of the day, this is exactly where radicalization thrives. As a result of it, when there is militancy, Israel is using disproportionate uh, force. Innocent people are killed. Only last year was the most violent when it comes to Palestinian deaths with 144 people, most of them unarmed Palestinians killed. And this fuels the conflict. Uh, sadly, Last week, a lone, a lone uh, gunner shot seven Israelis just outside the synagogue. And we see the same cycle, vicious cycle of violence. This leads to even harsher measures by the Israeli security forces. And who knows, maybe we are, I hope not, on the verge of a third intifada. Yossi, thank you very much indeed. That's Yossi Meckelberg. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The Pentagon is monitoring a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon that's been spotted flying over parts of the United States in recent days. Military leaders decided against shooting it down due to safety concerns over the danger of falling debris. The alleged spycraft is likely to raise tensions ahead of US Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China next week. A Brazilian senator has alleged that former President Jair Bolsonaro attended a meeting to discuss ways to overturn the country's presidential election result. Following Mr Bolsonaro's defeat, Marcos Duval says that a plan was discussed to secretly record the head of the electoral court in an effort to obtain an incriminating statement. And Southeast Asian foreign ministers will gather in Jakarta today for quarterly talks that will be dominated by the deteriorating situation in Myanmar. Myanmar's military junta, which has been in power since a violent coup two years ago, is banned from attending. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
From Israel and Palestine, Mexico and the US, Russia and Ukraine, has humanity's enduring obsession with borders brought us to crisis point? A new work examines whether we're entering the end game of a process that began thousands of years ago when we first started dividing up the earth. The book is called The Edge of the Plain, How Borders Make and Break Our World. And I spoke to the Scottish-born writer, historian and presenter James Crawford about it earlier. I began by asking whether James could define just exactly what a border is. People would understand a border as, as a line that separates two nations, you know, two territories, one, one from the other. And, you know, it, it's part of the very concept of sovereignty. And, you know, uh, people forget where sovereignty comes from. You know, it comes from a monarch. And, and this system that was developed 350 years ago, which was giving the monarch the right to decide what religion was practiced within a set geographical area, at which point we had to define what those geographical areas were. So that gives you a territorial boundary, and that's where nations come from. You know, Nations did not exist before this, so the, the concept of nationalism emerges out of this. Shared stories for those inside the lines. What we have got to now, you know, after two world wars, and, you know, you could argue that those two world wars were fought over those shared stories about people trying to expand those borders. You know, that concept of Lebensraum comes from the idea that, that nations were alive, that the border was almost like an epidermis, like a skin. And, and you know, some uh, German political theorists thought that actually to survive a nation had to grow. So you have that period of expansion. You have two world wars that are fought you get to the point where we are now, where I think borders are less about dividing nation from nation and much more about dividing rich from poor, mm. um, about trying to manage migrant flow um, around the world. And the UN has said that, you know, this year there's over 100 million displaced people for the first time in history. And there are others displaced by war, by conflict, by, by climate change. So you have a lot of global movement. And borders are about trying to manage that global movement more than anything else. And, I mean, in, in the last few decades, we've seen many more walls go up to keep people out. That's right. You know, at the end of the Cold War, the Berlin, Berlin Wall comes down. There's about 12 border walls around the world at that point. Now there's 74 and climbing. So, you know, that's a sixfold increase. You know, there's, there's more of more of this being constructed. But I do think these walls are less about actually stopping people. You know, the, the, the research suggests that they don't really stop people to any great degree. They certainly don't stop people trying to cross. But what they do do is appeal to a voter base. You know, and we've seen that with Trump's wall in America. You know, that was very much about appealing to a specific border uh, voter base, not actually about stopping people crossing the border. You know, there's still hundreds and hundreds of miles of, of wall unconstructed. So it's not it's not about that. It's it's about something else. And increasingly, you know, these these borders are symbols. You know, they're symbols of an old system and the actual bordering is happening elsewhere. You know, these borders are pushing further and further outwards. You know, you look at the the UK government's Rwanda policy, that's about outsourcing a border, outsourcing a border 400 miles to the south. You know, looking for a country that will that will take refugees. So in effect, you only cross the UK border once you've landed in Rwanda. Um, the American Border Patrol have been operating in Guatemala since 2019, trying to discourage 
people from, from making that journey northwards to the US-Mexico border. So borders are always moving outwards right now, and they're very much about controlling migration flow. Mm. And a lot of that migration flow, of course, is, is uh, driven by either economic hardship or very much related to that climate change. Yeah, that's, I mean, climate change is, is the big disruptor. You know, if you, if you think about why borders exist, it's it, it, they're, they're always the story that a border tells that is always there forever. Because why would you tell a story about being contingent? You know, that's that's the idea. This is our territory and this is where it always should be. I mean, the history of borders is the borders actually move and shift and change and bend all of the time and break and disappear all of the time. But with climate change, what we have now is, if you like, the ultimate border for humans, the only true border for humans, it's just where we can live. And, you know, there was a study done in 2020 that looked at what's known as the human climate niche. And if you think of it, this is the ultimate human border. And it was looking to ask the question, is there a temperature band within which humans have tended to live throughout history? And they found that, yes, very much there is. It's between about 11 to 15 degrees centigrade average mean temperature. And about 95% of the planet has lived within that band for the past 6,000 years. Looking forward in time, in the next 50 years, that temperature band, which has stayed relatively stable and pretty much in the same place, is going to shift more than it has in those last six millennia. And it's going to shift northwards and it's going to shift southwards towards the poles. So, you know, large parts of the tropics, places like India, Central Africa, the Sahel, might find themselves living in conditions where human beings, the vast majority of human beings, have tended not to live. And the study extrapolated forward and said, well, if they are not going to live in these conditions, how many people are we talking about who might move? And the figure they came up with is around 3 billion, which potentially by 2050 is a third of humanity. That doesn't mean they will move, but it does suggest that mass movement driven by climate change is on the way. And we have to have a way to deal with that. And the way to deal with that is looking at how we operate our borders right now, because they're not sustainable. How should we operate them? I think there are a number of ways we could look at it. One, and I think that, you know, this would be the, this would be the, in some respects, a radical thing, but at the same time, it would deal with the problem. I mean, borders, we're not going to start erasing borders from the map. We're not going to take a rubber and, and, and say, you know, France is no longer here, Germany is no longer here. The stories are too deeply ingrained. One way we could change things is looking at a human right to move. And we've never looked at this before. You know, and if you think about the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that emerged out of a catastrophe, which was the Second World War, and particularly the Holocaust, and the way that people were treated. And it may take another catastrophe, it may take a climate catastrophe, to, to add this human right to move. Because there is a right to move within your territory of origin. There's a right to leave your territory of origin and come back to it. But there isn't a, a universal right to move wherever you want. Perhaps there is a way of developing that. And perhaps it becomes inarguable that we need to develop it if parts of the planet are uninhabitable or, in the case of some low-lying nations, are going to be entirely submerged by the sea. What do they do? Do they cease to exist as nations? We've never had to deal with this before. What happens when a country disappears? And... As we look to the future, we're going to have to find ways of dealing with it and legal mechanisms of dealing with it. And perhaps a universal right to move could be one of them. 
That was James Crawford talking about his book The Edge of the Plain, How Borders Make and Break Our World. It's published by Norton in the US and Canongate in the UK. And you can hear an extended interview with James on Meet the Writers. That's our flagship literary show, which will be broadcast on Sunday at noon London time and thereafter available on our website. It's 8.38 in Zurich, that's 7.38 in London, and we continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me from our studio in Zurich is uh, Emily Isaaho, who is Programme Coordinator of Master of Advanced Studies at ETH Mediation in Peace Processes. Uh, Emily, many thanks for, for coming into the studio. I know it's no hardship to go to Durfestrasse 90. They serve such great coffee there. No, that's uh, that's exactly it. So it's the best way to start the morning, and especially today, because it looks like the sun will be out for, I think, what feels like the first time in at least a month. How fantastic. And you're just a, a block away from the lake. I can just imagine it now. Uh, you've also got fresh stack of newspapers in front of you. Uh, and uh, just uh, having a, a ruffle through them, I can see that you've uh, wanted to talk about the Prime Minister of Finland, Sanna Marin, who's uh, visiting her Swedish counterpart. Exactly. So Helsing in Sanoma, the Finnish newspaper, um, one of the key uh, or main news this morning was indeed uh, Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin's visit to Stockholm yesterday. She had a working meeting with her Swedish counterpart Ulf Kristersson um, and this was in fact the first reception of a visiting head of a government by Kristersson since his government was formed. And, and this meeting took place um, in a very interesting geopolitical context, not least between between Ankara, Stockholm, um, Helsinki and Washington DC. So there have been various events taking place in the past couple of months. So we all remember the hanging of an effigy of Erdogan in Stockholm um, in the beginning of January. And then there was the very unfortunate burning of a Quran outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm. And after this, President Erdogan hinted in one of his speeches in Turkey that he might have a different message um, for Finland and Sweden when it comes to their native applications. Um, and there was also a comment made by a, um, the foreign minister of Finland, Pekka Havisto, where he implied that Finland indeed could join without Sweden. Um, so there was a lot of tension in the air before Sanna Marin and um, Ulf Kristersson met yesterday in Stockholm. What kind of a message would they come to the press with? Um, and uh, perhaps surprisingly, at least according um, to Finnish press and, and, and um, Swedish press, they were extremely unanimous in saying that um, we started this application process together and it's in everyone's interest that they will end it together. Um, so despite some of the kind of ruffling of feathers over the past few weeks, the message was very clear and unanimous um, that Finland and, and Sweden are in this together. Mm. But Turkey, of course, is annoying many uh, Western diplomats. Uh, they've actually summoned several European countries' ambassadors uh, after various embassies were shut down on Wednesday. What's that all about? Exactly. So there have been um, some uh, kind of messages um, that I, I think embassies have received in Ankara and some of the consulate generals in Istanbul of a potential um, terrorist attack, of course, um, kind of building on these recent events in um, Stockholm, in Istanbul, and then various protests related to that. Um, so several countries, as you mentioned, announced on Wednesday of this week that they would close their embassies and consulate generals um, until further notice. And these countries include at least Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, um, the UK, Italy, Sweden, France, US and Belgium. Um, so 
based um, on this, um, the Turkish foreign ministry summoned the ambassadors uh, of these countries to the foreign ministry for discussions. The Turkish interior minister, Suleyman Soylu, called this a psychological war in Turkey. And this is, of course, in the broader context of Turkish elections um, being forthcoming um, in the next few months, um, either in June or May, depending on what President Erdogan decides in the end. And of course, one of his rallying points has always been that he's a man of safety, and stability and security in Turkey. Um, so to have international embassies closed because of security concerns does not send um, the message that he would like them to send to the Turkish population. Mm. Now, closer to home, uh, eight Swiss museums have come together to investigate the origins of their art. Absolutely. And of course, art restitution is something that um, even Monaco uh, in its magazines has discussed previously. Um, and Tages and Tiger, um, a Swiss newspaper this morning, uh, indeed talks about a Benin initiative uh, in Switzerland, which is the coming together of eight museums under the leadership of Museum Rietberg here in Zurich to examine um, the origins of um, their collections from the kingdom of Benin. And they want to distinguish um, or determine uh, for each object whether it was looted or probably stolen or probably not stolen or that it was not stolen. Um, And they've done this um, on all the artworks uh, or many of them thus far. And then the article, for instance, gives an example of an impressive um, brass head um, that was um, developed or or built um, by the Royal Guild of Bronze Casters in the court of Benin in the 17th of 18th century. And they have found this to be looted and the kind of trail leads to London, uh, where there was an art trader selling a lot of the art uh, stolen by the British colonial government um, back in 1897, when they looted Benin City and the royal palace there and took carved ivory teeth, metal bust, bronze plaques and different objects that became later known as Benin bronzes. And will that art be sent back? So it's unclear. Um, Nigeria, where um, uh, the kind of kingdom of Benin is uh, currently uh, in current day Nigeria, um, the government has not made any return requests to Swiss museums thus far. However, as part of a joint agreement between these Swiss museums and Nigeria, they have joined a joint declaration where um, the museums have indicated their willingness and openness to return the looted art pieces and all objects that are most likely looted. So it is a possibility. And that has been done in other countries. So some artifacts have been returned from Germany, for instance, and even the Church of England has returned some Benin bronzes um, back in April 2021. So it is a possibility, uh, but it's not certain yet. Emily, thank you very much indeed. That was Emily Aysaaho talking to us from our Zurich studio. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, it's time to talk business now with David Hodari, who is Monocle's business editor, very kindly coming into the office a couple of hours before he needs to, to have a chat about this. And we're going to start with Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, And it's become the latest global oil major to post a record annual profit. Tell us more. So this year, so last year, Shell uh, made 39 billion euros in profit. And just for a bit of context here, 
Uh, that's the third higher than its last record in 2008. And um, when BP and France's Total Energies report next week, it's expected that those two and Shell and ExxonMobil and Chevron will bring the oil supermajors profits to around 200 billion euros uh, in last year. And that's that comes in the wake of Russia cutting off its pipe, gas pipelines to Europe. What about the tax angle? So the profits generated by Shell and its rivals have led to widespread calls for higher taxation in both the EU and the UK. And both jurisdictions have introduced new levies in the past year. Um, and that's after Shell paid about $100 million in tax in the UK last year. And the company says it expects that figure to rise to around $500 million this year. But that hasn't stopped opposition figures in the UK from criticising that. So Ed Miliband, who listeners will remember as the former head of the UK opposition, and he's now the energy, shadow energy secretary, has, has said that uh, the government has let companies like Shell off the hook by not raising taxes even more at a time of high energy bills. Mm, but I, I suppose the counter-argument is that higher taxation would make it harder for Shell to invest in green energy. Well, that, that is possible, but unlikely, given that just a fraction of Shell's profits came from renewables and just a fraction of Shell's spending went on renewables. So for, for just to clarify that a little bit, um, Shell spent more than $12 billion on its oil and gas uh, production this year uh, against just $4 billion on its renewable energy. Let's go to Norway now uh, and a, a, a scandal amongst the grocers. Absolutely. So, um, uh, yeah, they're in a bit of a pickle, part of the pun. Um, <laughs> in the soup, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of other countries around the world, Norway's food prices are rising and the government has announced a 10-step plan to stem food price growth just on Wednesday. Um, but that comes after a lot of supermarkets there raise their prices at the start of February. So it's forcing them to reverse those price rises just two days later. And I wonder how that's gone down in the food retail market. Like a worm in an apple. Um, <laughs> well, you know, Rima 1000, which is one of the supermarkets there, they'd raised prices by about 5%. Um, and I said they'd lower them back down, but not without a slightly passive-aggressive statement from their MD, who cited, quote, quote-unquote, clearly higher costs for energy and raw materials, as well as supplier price hikes. Let's go to the car industry. Uh, there's a couple of stories there. The first one comes from uh, Renault-Nissan Alliance. Yeah, so um, along with Mitsubishi, those two companies represent the world's largest automotive alliance, and they're planning a huge announcement on Monday that will reshape their 20-year-long relationship uh, to make them more equal partners after years of Nissan being a minority partner. But, you know, it, it could have really far-reaching uh, consequences for the car industry. And we'll we'll see more about Renault reducing its stake in Nissan and Nissan investing in Renault's EV business on Monday. And finally, let's hear about Ferrari. They're doing extremely well. Yes, that's right. Last year was a good year for midlife crises, I think. <laughs> um, uh, against the backdrop of an economic downturn, Ferrari had its best year ever, thanks to sales in the Americas and China. Um, and it's expecting more of the same next uh, this year, um, with with guidance looking pretty upbeat. The company plans to join the likes of Porsche and Bentley in launching its first SUV, and it continues to accelerate towards its first electric car in uh, 2025. That's the hybrid hypercar, the SF90. It looks amazing. It does indeed. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, there's the entry-level Portofino M. I'm saying that like I, I know what I'm talking about, but I vaguely do, actually, having covertly checked it out. Uh, well, I'm very impressed, you know, given that we both live in London. Um, I think um, I think the last time I saw a Ferrari, it was uh, stuck in uh, two-mile-per-hour traffic, which seems a little redundant to me. <laughs> 
Uh, David, thank you very much for, for, for coming in. Uh, and just before you go, give us a quick idea of, of what you're covering business-wise in the magazine. Well, readers can get excited for uh, the April edition, which, uh, which will be out after the, after the March edition, unsurprisingly. The, Mar- <laughs> the March edition uh, will be focusing on uh, a lot of interesting stories, um, including uh, a huge package we've got going, funnily enough, on the electric car on electric vehicles and their progress and how it's, you know, in some cases, stalled. <laughs> well, particularly in London, it's quite hard, isn't it, without sufficient charging points. Uh, David, thank you very much indeed. That's David Hadari there. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. And now, as it's Friday, it's time for Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, to tell us everything we've learnt since the start of the week. We learned this week that we are all but extras in a desperately feeble remake of From Russia With Love. He threatened me at one point and said, you know, uh, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but uh, with a missile it would only take a minute or something like that, you know. We learned that while Boris Johnson was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and a reminder at this point that Boris actual Johnson being actually put in charge of an actual country was an actual thing which actually happened, President Vladimir Putin of Russia menaced him personally at one especially delicate point in negotiations with the prospect of a missile strike. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr Bond. It may be your last. That's from Goldfinger, isn't it? Ah, whatever. We very shortly subsequently learned, however, that there was some reason to doubt a version of events adumbrated by Boris Johnson of all people. No. Really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. Shocked as you are, etc. We learned that Russia, as is traditional, denied everything, which means that we might also have learned that Russia had failed to consider just how large a plurality of British voters might well have reacted to President Putin's threat with sentiments along the lines of, oh, come on, let's hear the fellow out. As you see, I am about to inaugurate a little war. That's not from Russia with love either. Sticking with the subject of debatably trustworthy posh Englishmen undertaking a process of attempting to persuade the lower orders that they're not such a bad chap after all, we also learned a surprising amount about the size of bathtub into which Prince Andrew will not fit. We learned this from the Daily Telegraph, the venerable masthead once regarded as the house journal of stolid, sensible British conservatism, which has regrettably spent the post-Brexit epoch substantially having what we believe the young folks refer to as a normal one. It feels like a good moment to emphasise, for the benefit of our international listeners, that we are absolutely not making any of the following up. We learned from the front goddamn page of last Saturday's Telegraph that whoever is now handling Prince Andrew's PR... 
had determined that the best way of clearing their client's name was to get two fully clothed people to sit in a bathtub whilst obscuring their faces with pieces of laminated A4 paper bearing the images of Prince Andrew and Virginia Dufresne. That woman Prince Andrew has never even ever met, much less mistreated in any way whatsoever, but to whom he nevertheless gave 12 million quid in an out-of-court settlement roughly this time last year, where's the awkward coughing clip. <coughs> we learned, once retrieving our monocle from the marmalade and scrutinising the copy accompanying this curious tableau, that the point of the exercise was to refute suggestions that among the places that the prince did not even ever meet, much less mistreat in any way Ms. Giuffray, was this very bathtub, believed to be in the former London abode of child trafficker Ghislaine Maxwell, whose indisputable long-standing friendship with the prince is maybe not something of which he should be quite so keen to remind people. <coughs> Anyway, we learned that the former bathtub of Ms. Maxwell, who is currently enduring 20 years of somewhat less comfortable accommodations than those to which she had been previously accustomed, measures, and we hope you're writing this down, 1,359mm by 380mm, which we learned from the Telegraph story is apparently not big enough. Except that we learned from the Telegraph's photo that it very clearly is. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Mm -hmm. We have learned, basically, that Prince Andrew has not learned that it is unwise to retain reputation managers whose work attire is dominated by big shoes, red noses and lapel flowers which squirt water, and who commute in very little cars. And persisting with the automotive motif... We learned, as we so very often do in the course of researching these monologues, that people, as a species, are often very reluctant to learn very obvious things. Like, for example, the perils of continuing to drive one's car past roadblocks adorned with flashing hazard lights and signs bearing warnings including but not limited to stop and road closed. Drivers disregarding signs up for their own safety, steering straight into a 12-foot-wide crevice. We learned that this live-action metaphor for absolutely everything had been enacted near the California settlement of Tracy, hitherto best known as the residence of large-trousered, bad-in-the-90s rapper MC Hammer. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. No, no, and nope. While it remains vexingly unclear as of this broadcast whether the generously pantalooned Here Comes the Hammer hitmaker is one of the heedless scofflaws involved, we did learn that at least three cars within the last fortnight have been claimed by a highway sinkhole caused by recent floods, in every instance after being driven around the fortifications and warnings erected by exasperated local police. And we learned that one local resident had been moved by this recurrent folly to the spontaneous coinage of as accurate a summation of the human condition as we may hear in our time. People are so stupid, I can't even believe it. Preach, brother. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
Many thanks there to Andrew. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parminchin, and our studio manager, Nora Hull, with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be with you right up until the briefing, which is live at midday in London. And let me just tell you a few things that you can look forward to. I'll be back tomorrow on Monocle Weekends and Monocle on Saturday, where we'll have an in-depth look at the papers. Uh, and uh, then on Sunday uh, we'll be chatting to James Crawford about his book we heard an extract of that little bit earlier The Edge of the Plain How Borders Make and Break Our World and if it's literary content you're after well I can tell you that Monocle Reed's latest episode is now up and it's with the Los Angeles based artist and writer Catherine Scanlon about her brilliant new novel it's called Kick the Latch and it's basically uh, sort of almost transcripts fictionalised transcripts of her conversation with this with this woman who'd spent a lifetime on, on racing tracks. Absolutely extraordinary book. Uh, and that's it, really. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll return on The Globalist at the same time on Monday. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>